Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations. Probably weren't expecting that when you walked in here on the first day of Advent, right? Lamentations. If you're not sure where it is, it's, it's in, in the Old Testament, right after the book of Jeremiah. If you can't, don't know where the book of Jeremiah is, use a table of contents. I had a professor back in college say, that's the most important page in your Bible, the table of contents. You can find everything that way, so... We're obviously not in Mark's gospel. I, I had every intention of staying in Mark's gospel through the Advent season, and when I looked at where we were in Mark's gospel, I just wouldn't, couldn't do that and do justice to the text. So we're going to set aside our study of Mark's gospel and focus on the four themes of Advent. Faith, or either hope, peace, joy, and love. That's going to be our themes. Um, Advent goes back to the 4th century at least, where the church focused uh, a time of worship, praise, meditation um, on the manifestation of the character of God. In the 6th century is when uh, the number of Sundays was reduced to four and it took on the rough format that we have today, uh, continued to develop throughout the centuries. But it's something the church has done for a very long time and it is very, very helpful. It's intended, actually in the original uh, celebration of Advent, it had three different objects with regards to the manifestation or the appearing of Christ. First, in his birth, as of course we do now, but also in the manifestation or the appearing of Christ through the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So that was also a focus of the early Advent. And then, of course, his appearing when he comes back for us, for his church, which he's promised to do. So it was a threefold focus in the earliest days of Advent. Um, we've narrowed it down a little bit, but we should be aware, certainly, of those other aspects of his appearing. These four, hope, peace, joy, and love, as they point to the incarnation, God in human flesh, for our benefit. Reminder of how him coming in the veil of human flesh brought us hope, gave us reason to hope, brings us peace, gives us reason for peace. Gives us cause for joy and reminds us of his great love for us. And so, based on that, we're going to move forward this morning. We're going to talk about hope. Specifically, hope as connected to his birth, the incarnation of God, human flesh. And to that end, we're going to look at the book of Lamentation. Now, the book of that may surprise you. You may wonder, what in the world is Pastor doing? It's Christmas, season of joy, celebration, presence. Why is pastor reading this list of woe from the prophet Jeremiah? Well, we'll find out here in, in just a little minute. You know, it's because when you think about Mary and Joseph and the wise man and the gifts and all that at the joyous time of year, um, it's helpful to be mindful that the very first Christmas wasn't a time of great sorrow. It was a great sorrow that first Christmas year. And so with that in mind... Lamentations chapter, and by the way, just I'll tell you right up front, if, if the book of Lamentations seems like odd to you, I mean, we don't normally talk that way, we, I mean, not too many of us have used the word lamentation in conversation this week, it actually connects more to all, our culture than you might realize, right? How many remember that really popular movie uh, a few years back, Brother, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And the song, I am a man of constant, right, 
from the book of Lamentations. Yeah, so it's not as foreign to our culture as you might think, right? But Lamentations, chapter 3. It's just a word for woe. Lamentation, it's a word for low. Well, one, in fact, one musician once suggested that there's only one style of music that actually has an entire book of the Bible dedicated to it. You know, when Jeremiah sang the blues? There's some truth in that. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19. The prophet writes, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we are grateful this morning that your word not only speaks to us in seasons when everything is going great and we can be happy and joyful, Father. Your word also speaks to us in times when things aren't going so well, when it's hard, when it hurts. We're mindful, Father, that that first Christmas was a time when things were not going well. We ask that from that we would gain encouragement this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, the first Christmas was a time of difficulty and sorrow. Now, most of us, when we think that, and we, I think we're aware of that. You watch all the, you know, the films or the demonstrations or you know, the presentations of the, of, the, of the Christmas story. There's always that Roman right in the background, right? We associate the difficulty of that first Christmas with the presence of the Romans and all the oppression that they brought. And that certainly was enough to bring great sorrow, but it wasn't the main reason. There was actually a far greater reason for the people of Israel the people who were there, to be in sorrow. It was the simple fact that they hadn't heard a word from God for 400 years. 400 years. Most scholars put the Old Testament, Old Testament scholars put the Old Testament in, as ending in the book of Malachi, dated about 400 B.C. That's the last they'd heard from God. And this is how it ends. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And this is the last line. This is the last line of the Old Testament. So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. The last word. You're going to hear more of that. I'm, I, I bit the bubble. I'm studying Hebrew, so I'm going to try to work a little bit in there, right? Okay, yeah. Head him. The last word, the Old Testament, is curse. And then silence. And to put that in context, consider this. The people of God, the people of Israel, had been accustomed to over a thousand years of having an active, present, prophetic voice in their midst, in addition to having the law. If you look at a timeline of the prophets of the Old Testament of Israel, you can go from, from Malachi all the way back to Samuel. And with very few small breaks between different prophets, it's an uninterrupted time 
of a prophetic word being spoken to the people of Israel. Now, I know there's a lot of, a lot of discussion, you know, now about what a prophetic word is. I was asked just this week. I'm frequently asked about, you know, well, what about a prophetic word? Just be mindful of this, that in that thousand years, going, actually going all the way back to Moses, where there was a constant prophetic word to the people of Israel from the mouth of the prophet, the message was always this, return to God. The purpose of the prophet was to call God's people back to God. Right? That's what the ministry of the prophet, then as it is now, is all about. Whenever the call goes out for people to return to God, that's, that's the prophetic message. And it was alive and it was fresh for over a thousand years. And then somebody threw a switch and stopped. And during that, that time when the, when the lights were out, the voice was quiet, a lot happened. The Persians came and, and went. Alexander the Great came and went. The Greek Seleucids, who for over 200 years ruled Israel cruelly, came and went. The Hasmoneans, that small window when Israel for about 100 years had self-ruled before the time of Christ, that came and went. And then the Romans came, and they're waiting for them to went. 400 years of darkness, 400 years of waiting for God to speak, for God to move, for God to send the Messiah. And not just among the Jews, not just among the Jews. You know, we all know about, you know, the Magi. They come and they, they bring the gifts, right? Matthew, describing their arrival... As Pastor Joyce read this morning, quotes from Isaiah. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. It was lights out everywhere, including the Gentile world. You know, I've always kind of wondered, or for many years wondered, you know, the whole thing about, like, how did the Magi know that, was, that star meant what it did? Well, most scholars trace the, the wise men's knowledge of the importance of that star to the time, when, they were Persians, right? To the time when Daniel was the chief of the wise men. He would have brought the knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, including the passage in Numbers, which talks about a star appearing, into the understanding and the teaching of the wise men. So consider this. This group of Gentiles, this group of you know, Persian intellectuals, if you will, the wise men of Persia, they've been waiting 600 years, because that's how long it's been since Daniel. They've been waiting 600 years for this star. Give those guys credit. Watching, waiting for the appearing of a star. Nothing. They're not hearing anything. Well, as, as, again, Pastor Joyce already pointed out, here in Alaska, we know what to do when the lights go out. Light a candle. Flashlight. Generators, you've got one. Pray for this guy over here. He's a lineman. Pray for he and his, and his, and his compatriots. Right? Do we pray for them, right? You know, pray for their safety and their success. I'm not going to prioritize the two. But mostly, what do we do? We wait and hope. Hope it comes back on soon. Right. Here's the thing. Even when it does come back on, it's only temporary. You know it's going off again. Uh, but th that isn't the real problem. The real problem is that's just physical light. The world's still lost in darkness. On the brightest, most glorious summer day, 
humanity still lost in darkness, waiting for the light. And humanity's best efforts to illuminate itself spiritually never work, only make it worse. So we look, we wait, we watch, we hope. When Jesus was born, he came to a people who were waiting and hoping. Let's talk about hope. Uh, The Old Testament has at least four different words for hope. Um, They're all rooted in the idea of trust or confidence, and they all look to the future. The future is an inherent component in, in hope. It speaks of a confident expectation. All of these words, all different shades of meaning, but they all speak of a confident expectation that things will be good. They will turn out well. They all share an object. When we say that we hope, we hope that, or we hope for. There's an object of hope. There's also a reason or a source for hope. We hope because. I have hope because the faithfulness, the goodness of my God. And between the object of hope and the source of hope, there's a justification for our confidence. Now, the New Testament's much simpler in this case. It actually only has one word. It's got two forms. El piso, I hope. El pida, to hope, have a hope, right? They mean the same thing. There's an object for which we hope. There's a reason for the confidence with which I hope. I look to the future with assurance. The difference between Old Testament and New, the Old Testament hope was focused on the restoration of a Davidic kingdom that was human in every way except it would be blessed of God and guided by the principles of God, the law. Whereas the New Testament hope is focused exclusively on one thing, the person of Christ. Our hope is focused completely on him. The manifestation, the demonstration the appearing, if you will, of the Son of God and the person of Christ. And that's the conviction, rather the connection between hope and Advent. Advent means his appearing. In the earliest celebrations of, of Advent, again, they talked about Jesus' birth. They talked about the outpouring of the Spirit. And they talked about his return, return for his church. All of those aspects of the visible return of Christ. His visible presence. Uh, I've quoted uh, German scholar Ernst Hoffman on the subject of Advent before. He notes that in, the, that in the New Testament, the idea of hope always has three components. There's always three things present. First, it is completely Christ-centered. Our hope is focused on, if it's a biblical New Testament hope, it's based on the person of Christ. Uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be like, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Now, we'll talk about that last part when we, in just a moment. But the point being, our hope is fixed on him. He is the complete object of our hope, of our confident expectation. Second, Ernst Hoffman notes that Christ is the basis of my hope. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do share of the... And in my flesh, excuse me, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, 
so that I might carry out the preaching of the word of God. And then Paul writes this. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and I read all of that just to read this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us. That is the, that's an essential element of Christian hope. My hope is based on the incarnation. For God so loved the world that he gave his son present in human flesh. My hope is based on the cross that Jesus in the flesh suffered and died on my behalf. My hope is based on the resurrection that he rose from the dead. My hope is based upon an empty tomb. The physicality of the, of the resurrection and the fact that if we share in his death, as Romans tells us, we also share in that resurrection. My hope is based on the accomplished work of Christ after the resurrection. Here the authors, author of the book to the Hebrews, he writes this, or she writes this. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with, a no, with, with an oath. Now, how many of you used the word interposed this week? That's not like a word that we normally use. So what does interposed mean, right? Uh, in this case, letter of Hebrews, it comes from the, the Greek word mesitevo. Uh, mesitevo. Not mesedes, that's an appetizer plate. It's different. I, happen, I like both of those words. Mesitevo, it's one of Pastor Joyce's favorite words. She always smiles when I say it because uh, it meant so much to us. It's, it's a person that lands in the middle you know, you can't rent an apartment in Greece. You can't do it. Landlord won't talk to you. Landlord will not talk to somebody they don't know. They will not rent to a stranger, right? So you have to have a, a mesotevis, somebody that lands right in the middle and can represent both parties. It's an intermediary. It's somebody that's there to facilitate the doing of business. What does that tell us? That in the person of Christ, God came down to do business. Jesus wasn't just words. He was action. He came down to get her done. Things would happen. Salvation would happen. So God interposed. He stepped into the situation so that by two unchangeable things, the author to Hebrews writes, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We are encouraged to grasp because God has interposed himself between, between us and the consequences of our sin. That's the offer of salvation. That is the offer of salvation. That God has interposed himself. He set himself in the middle and took action to step between us and the consequences of our sin, which is eternal separation from God. And by, when we grasp that by faith, that's what it is to accept the offer of salvation. It's to say, I will accept what God has done on my behalf. He's been my middleman. He stepped in the middle to do the business necessary to deliver me from the eternal consequences of my sin. And if that doesn't describe you, I would encourage you to talk to Pastor Joyce or I afterwards. We'll tell you just how easy it is to embrace that offer the offer of salvation. 
We have God's promise and Jesus' work. And then the author of Hebrews wraps this section up this way. This hope, this expectation, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. This hope that we have in his accomplished work reaches clear into eternity. What a deal. What a deal. So our hope is centered first on the person of Christ. It's based secondly on the work of Christ. And thirdly, Hoffman notes, it is a gift. This is like the best part. We don't have to work for it. It's a gift. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. He has given us comfort and hope by grace. Our hope, that confident expectation that we have that Christ has forgiven us or God has forgiven us through Christ for our sins. He's invited us to share in the resurrection. He's poured out his spirit upon us that we might be his church in this world, the visible presence of Christ in this world. He has assured us of a place in eternity with him, freed from the consequences of our sins. That's all a gift. That hope, that confidence is a gift. So in Advent... When we talk about hope, these are the things we focus on. These are the things we meditate on. And that's so important because even though Christmas is a joyous time of year, it does arrive in the midst of ugliness. It does arrive in the midst of pain. It does come in the midst of the world in which we live. Yeah, the beauty of the mixture of beauty and ugliness in man's inhumanity, the mixture of light and darkness. The reality of the great power of evil, sometimes looking like it will overwhelm us. And we struggle with pain. We struggle with pain. Physical pain when our bodies don't work right. Emotional and psychological pain when our relationships don't work right. Spiritual pain when we see those around us suffering the effects of evil. That's pain. And we cry out, O oh Lord, how long? How many of us have not cried out so? How long, O oh Lord? Do you know that occurs 60 times in the Bible? How long? That pleading question. I didn't do the actual math, but I think it's broke down to like a 50-50 split. About half the time, it's God saying to man, how long? How long are you going to keep this up? And about half the time, it's man saying to God, how long do we have to wait? How long before you set things right? How long? But then hope enters in. Even as we wait, hope reminds us of the temporal nature of all things around us. We long for resolution, and hope reminds us. And this is when hope becomes critical. When the, I mean, you don't need hope when the answer is there, right? Bible talks, we don't hope for things we already have, right? When things are going swimmingly, who needs hope? But when it's not going well, and we wait. You know, John, in, in 1 John 3, we just read it, spoke of hope having a purifying effect. That everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now that doesn't mean that in the process of hoping for Christ, hoping for his manifestation in our life, hoping that the problems in our world will be resolved, that doesn't mean that we also have to run, go through some kind of liturgical exercise to purify ourselves. No, that's not what that means. 
that means that in the very process of waiting, in the very process of hoping, in the very process of fixing our gaze on him, both as the object of our hope and as the source of our hope, that by definition has a purifying effect. You struggle with sin? We all do. One of the keys to overcoming sin is narrowing our focus. Because I can assure you, the more we think about the person of Christ, both, both as the object of our hope and as the source of our hope, and his promise to return and take us to himself, that has a purifying effect. Hope's a powerful thing. Powerful. James talks about patience having its perfect effect, its perfect work, as we long and wait in hope. Advent reminds us, this is, this is the whole thing for me at least, Advent reminds us that even in the waiting, even in the longing, even as, as, as we wait in hope, that is proof that he is working because the source of that hope is him. Jeremiah, as we read, we started this morning, said this, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. This guy's life was rough. He did not live in a good time in Israel. He lived his entire life as a subject person in a subject country, subject to a brutal government. He said, remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. The angst and the sorrow and the pain had reached a place in his heart where his soul itself, not simply physically bowed down, but his very soul, his very being was bowed down in pain. The man of God knew what it was to bear under sorrow and disappointment this pain that went deep into his soul. And then he said this, this I recall. This is his response to the sorrow that bent his soul so badly. He said, this I recall to my mind. It was a conscious decision on his part. It was a willful act to remember these things. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The confident expectation that God would answer, that God would move. I have hope. And he says this, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. I love absolutes. I, I, I love absolutes that you can just wrap your brain around and know that they're, they're nailed down permanently. Jeremiah here speaks in absolutes. His loving kindness, his hesed, that overwhelming concern he has for our well-being. We are the object of his perfect love. That never ceases. That's an absolute. His compassion entering into our suffering, feeling what we feel, that never ends. The prophet was mindful that even in his sorrow, God's hesed was present and active. The waiting didn't mean God wasn't working. That's one of the fallacies that really kills us. When something's going on in our life and we bring it before God in prayer and we say, God, this is what's going on. How long do I have to wait? We buy into the idea that God has taken us and our problem and put us on a shelf someplace and he'll like get to us when he gets to us. Right? You buy into that idea? I do. You know, I know God will answer when he gets around to it or I know God will take care of me when, he, when, it, when, that, when that slot on his to-do list shows up. No. 
What, is, what, is the, what does the prophet say? He says, his loving kindness never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. What does that mean? Those things are at work in my life constantly. I may not yet see the results, but that doesn't mean he's not working on it. I think of the things that weigh heavily on my soul, those whom I love and care for, and knowing what they're going through causes me pain, and I bring them before the Lord, and then I say, how long? But I know this. His, his compassion never fails. His mercies, are new. his mercies are new every morning. He is extending mercy to me and to the people for whom I pray every morning. He has not turned away. He has not neglected us. Great is your faithfulness. And then the prophet concludes this way. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. You catch that? The same part of his very being, his soul, that was so bound down in anguish and pain and distress, it is now that very self-same part of his being that will declare, I have hope in him. The Lord is my portion. That's what hope does for us. We are reminded in the person of Christ that he is both the object and the basis for our hope. We are reminded that hope that he gives is a gift. We don't have to gin it up. We just have to look, look to him and ask. So when we look at the Advent wreath, the Advent calendar, the Advent candle, or any of that stuff, we can be reminded of the greatness of his faithfulness to the people of Israel as they watched and waited for 400. He kept them. Yeah, they went through some rough stuff, but he kept them. The fact that they were there when the Messiah showed up says something. He kept them. He kept the sages of Persia as they watched and waited. He kept the disciples as they waited in the upper room, fearful as they were. He kept the early church and the church today when it faces persecution, horrific trial. And he keeps us in the difficulties, in the challenges that we encounter being the people of God in a fallen world. Anybody told you it was going to be easy wasn't telling you the truth. It's hard. But he's faithful. He's faithful. We're reminded that he's never yet failed to keep a promise. He is working in our lives even when we don't see it. And the very fact that we continue to hope in him is evidence of it. Father, I thank you. Um, we do live in a world, Lord, that is so filled with darkness and pain. Father, we, we gather together on a Sunday morning and we pray um, about the wars, the incredible suffering of people around the world. We think of the, the wars in, between Israel and, and on the Gaza Strip. We think about you know, the violence that has broken out in the Sudan, the violence that continues in the Ukraine, Father, uh, new outbreaks of violence in, in Kosovo. Father, the list goes on and on. And there's, I'm sure, Father, dozens of places we don't even know about we think about the pain of the human experience because of sin. Father, we think about the difficulties and the challenges in our own families, Lord. We think about the difficulties in our own lives as we try to serve you and to be found faithful as your people. And Father, sometimes we can just get to feeling worn down and it can be discouraging. Sometimes, Father, in the Christmas season, we can even like start to feel guilty because we're supposed to be happy and joyous and, and yet there's still all this stuff. And if we succeed in setting it aside and, and, you know, being happy for a moment, then we kind of feel guilty because we were happy. We get all crazy, Lord. It really does get crazy. Father, we're mindful 
that we have a very good reason to hope. And in that hope, we will find peace and joy. But the foundation, Father, is our expectation of who you are and what you do in our lives. And we want to be found faithful, Father, to meditate on those things, as Jeremiah did, to make the conscious decision in face of the things that may give, cause us anguish, Father, to make the conscious decision to focus on what Christ has done and what he's doing for your kingdom's sake and us. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship him.